the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. You're either for Christ or against Him. And if you make a decision for Christ, the day you die, your spirit separates from your body and immediately goes to heaven because now Christ has given us access to heaven, whereas before the cross, you didn't have access to heaven. It was only through the blood of Christ, so you were kept in the paradise side. So the paradise side of Hades has been emptied now. Only the torment side is the place that remains. And so this is the reality. Either we accept what Christ has done for us, and we have our sins forgiven, and we have access to heaven, we reject him, and we suffer the eternal punishment and consequences for those decisions. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Peter. When you are on this earth, you have to make the biggest decisions of your life. You either accept Christ or you are against Him. When you accept Him and invite Him to change your life, this is what we call salvation, and you die, you go immediately to heaven because Jesus came to earth and died on a cross for your sins. Today, Pastor Gary explains that if you reject him, you will suffer the eternal consequences and live without Christ for eternity. Baptism is symbolic, but it is not what saves you. Faith in Christ alone is what leads you to salvation. You die to your previous life and live in the new life God has given you. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. what he calls us to. He says, this is what you are called to. The Christian life should be characterized by these things. And then he adds in verse 13, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer, circle that word there in your Bibles, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer, there's the word again, for doing good than for doing evil. So let's pause there and just break down this section. You'll notice with me, I asked you to circle the word suffer. It appears twice in this section here. And actually the word suffer or some form of that word appears 17 times in the book of 1 Peter alone. 
17 times. This is a major theme in the book of 1 Peter, because if you remember in our opening of chapter 1, Peter is writing this during a time when uh, Christians are being martyred uh, like never before. Between the years AD 64 and 67, this is when Christians under the emperor Nero, who were the Christians who were blamed for Rome burning, uh, were, were martyred. And uh, they were dying by the tens of thousands. They were being rounded up and persecuted and killed for their faith. And that's the climate, all right? And that's what's happening. And Peter writes to Christians living during this time, and he encourages them about their suffering because he says, basically, Christ has suffered for us, so be prepared for a little suffering yourselves. And he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, there in verse 13, you're blessed. Like, God's going to take care of you. And he says, don't be afraid of their threats. Now, again, he's writing to Christians whose lives are on the line during this particular time. And he says, don't be afraid of their threats. Don't be troubled. He says, sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts. Now, the word sanctify just means to set apart as holy. So he's calling us to holy living. And we're not even living under the threat of of, of death like they were, and, but yet they're being challenged in this way. Because I want you, even in the face of suffering, to the point where your lives might even be required of you to be sanctifying Christ in your heart. Set him apart as holy, living for the Lord. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready, notice this, verse 15, to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your, you, your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So let's park it here for just a minute because um, he's going to tell us here about being ready to give a defense of the faith. Um, and it's an important uh, point that he makes for us to be challenged in our own lives today. So he says there in verse 15 that we need to be ready to give a defense. That phrase, to give a defense, is one word in the Greek, and it's apologia. We, we get the English word apologetics. Apologetics, in, in Christian terms, is one who is able to give a defense of his or her faith. That's what apologetics means. We, we get the English word apology out of it, too, but when we think of apology, we, we, you know, we're, we're sorry and ashamed of something. But apologetics, in the truest, the strictest Greek way, means that we are to um, be prepared to give in a defense for something. And in this case, in this context, the apologia, the defense, the apologetics, is to be prepared to defend your faith. And what he's going to tell us here in this passage is that there are three things, and we'll just go over these three things, that are necessary if you and I want to be ready to give a defense of our faith. And the first one is a good example. A good example. And I've got questions after each of these three points that we need to ask ourselves. And the question that corresponds to point number one example is the question, is my life a good example of Christ? Because people will only ask if they notice something different, right? And this is what Peter is saying here. He says, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason For the hope that is in you. The implication is there's something about your life and my life that gives reason for people to ask us. And the only reason people would want to ask us what's going on with us is if they notice something different about us. 
So the first key in order to really give a defense of our faith, if you and I want to be a good witness, if we want to have an an evangelistic uh, impact in people's lives, it first starts with being a good example. We have to be people who are not Christians in name only, but also in action. Because if it's name only without action, then it's hypocrisy. If we say we're a Christian, but we're not living like one, then we're not setting a good example, and people are certainly not going to want what we have because we look too much like they live. So if we offer them something as an example of Christ that is different from the life that they're living, they might be more inclined to ask us, what's the deal with you? What's going on with your life? How come when you just got that bad news, you just seem to be at peace? How come, how come you, you seem to be able to deal with things in your marriage that my wife and I aren't able to deal with, or my husband and I aren't able to, and they'll start to ask questions. Like, how do you have your life together? What's, what's the deal? Because hopefully we're living a life that is a good example of Christ. The second thing that's important in order for us to be ready to give a defense of the faith, number two, is explanation. And the question with that is, am I growing in the knowledge of Scripture so that I can adequately explain what I believe? If people are going to ask us we have to be ready to actually share something. Okay, I think it was St. Francis of Assisi who said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. So our lives are always on display. That's the example part. But then we should also be prepared to use words. That's the explanation part. And you're, you're not going to be able to use words to defend your faith, to tell people why you believe what you believe, without having an adequate understanding of the Bible. Now, don't get, don't get overwhelmed by the idea that if I don't know everything from Genesis to Revelation, I won't be able to be a good witness to somebody. Trust me, I've been doing this full-time for 32 years. I'm the first one to say, there's a lot of passages of the Bible I don't know, I can't quote off the top of my head, okay? That's, the issue is not how much of the Bible are you prepared to answer. The issue is, are you growing in your faith? such that you're able to use enough scripture to adequately communicate what you believe and why you believe so that people can have an understanding of who Christ is, how he, just the basics, who Christ is, that he died for you on a cross, that he loves you, that he opened the way to heaven for all who would believe and receive, that it's a free gift that God gives us, that if we accept him by faith, we can be forgiven, we can go to heaven. I mean, the simplicity of the gospel shouldn't be overcomplicated, but we have to at least be growing in our faith enough to be at, able to adequately explain what we believe and why we believe it. And then number three, it, it also goes hand in hand with all of this, and that's expression. And the question is, am I careful to express myself, and these are the words that, that Peter uses here, with meekness, some of your translations say gentleness, with fear, some of your translations say respect, and with a good conscience. So as we ex- you know, as we express ourselves and our faith, we need to make sure that we're not coming across in some arrogant, abrasive, judgmental way. In other words, Peter is calling us to be a good witness, to be prepared to give an answer for all those who ask us. But when we do, when we explain it, make sure we're doing it with meekness, gentleness. Make sure we're doing it with fear or respect for people. Make sure that we're doing this out of a good conscience, that there's not hypocrisy in any of this so that others might come to know Christ in the same way. And he adds there, if they defame you, 
If people say malicious things against you or about you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ, you know, if you just continue to just live your life faithful to the Lord, let people say what they might. Uh, In the end, they'll probably be ashamed of saying what they do about you because your good conduct will prove your integrity. For if, he says, for it, in verse 17, is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered, here's the same theme, once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, we'll talk about this in a minute, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So let me just touch on that last verse, and then we'll go back up and talk about what in the world does all that mean. That last verse there about how Christ has gone into heaven, where angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him, that's the fourth one on our list about the order of harmony. There's also order in heaven. And the same word here to be subject to is hupotasso, meaning there's, there's an order of submission in heaven. The angels and authorities, they are under submission to the lordship of Jesus, who now presently is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. But what is all this other stuff here that he talks about? Christ suffered once for our sins. We get this, right? Died on a cross, paid the price for us. And then it talks about in verse 19 that he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. I didn't know Jesus had a prison ministry. What, is the, what in the world is this talking about? What? So I'm going to read another passage out of Ephesians chapter 4, and you can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. But, but I want to talk about this in just the few minutes we have left here and try to uh, tie this together. And the lead question before I read from Ephesians chapter 4 is this. What happened to Christ during the three days that his body lay in the tomb? Because in order to understand what we're talking about here, we have to ask that question. What happened to Jesus during the three days that his body lay in the tomb? Peter here refers to the idea of Jesus going to preach to the spirits in prison. Um, This is not a literal prison, but nevertheless, they are held captive in a certain place. It is important to note that Peter uses the word he preached, Jesus preached. It is the Greek word caruso. And it means to herald or to proclaim. It is a different word than evangelion, which means to evangelize. Keep that in mind because it'll make more sense when I unpack this with you. He goes to prison to a place where people's souls, it says here, are kept captive. And Peter specifically references people who in the days of Noah uh, disobeyed and they end up here captive So where is Jesus? Where are these souls who are being held captive? And what does all this mean? So in Ephesians chapter 4, there's another kind of parallel passage that helps us to make sense of this. And in Ephesians 4, this is what it says in verses 7, 8, and 9. It says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's 
of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So let me try to make sense of this and, and put Ephesians 4 together with 1 Peter chapter 3 in the last few minutes we have left here. Um, you can also go home later and read out of Luke chapter 16. There is a parable. It's actually a, a true story that is given to us in parabolic terms about a rich man who dies and a, a, uh, who is not a righteous guy and Lazarus, who is a righteous guy, who also dies. And they go to two different places separated by a gulf or a chasm. And in Luke chapter 16, in this parable, uh, the idea is that Lazarus, who was righteous, went to Abraham's side which was a place of paradise. And the guy who was unrighteous went to a place of torment. In fact, in the parable, he talks about how he's on fire in torment. Where did Jesus go for the three days that his body lay in the tomb? The answer is, before Christ died on the cross, every spirit, every soul, when a person dies, their spirit separates from their body. Their body decays, goes back into the ground and returns to dust. But before Christ dies on a cross... Where did the people go? Because before Christ dies on the cross, people who are righteous can't go to heaven. There's no provision that's been made before Christ died on the cross. The animal sacrifice was just a temporary way of uh, providing temporary atonement for the sins of people. It was not sufficient to gain people access to heaven. So what happens to those people? Where did they go? Where were their souls? And what happened to the unrighteous people who died? The people who didn't practice the animal sacrificial system, which was God's only provision for temporary righteousness. So here's the answer. When you put 1 Peter 3 together with Ephesians chapter 4, Luke chapter 16, let me sew it together for us. During the three days that Jesus' body lay in the tomb, his spirit was absent from his body. The place where all departed souls went prior to the crucifixion of Christ, was called in Hebrew Sheol, or in the Greek, Hades. Now, we typically translate Hades or Sheol to mean the grave or to mean hell, but I don't want you to think of it entirely as a place of torment, because Hades or Sheol was a broad term that was used for the entire place where all departed souls were kept, and that place of Hades was separated into two sections. Luke 16 tells us in that parable that there was a place of torment, a place of fire, a place of punishment. And the other side was a place of paradise where Abraham was. It was also called Abraham's side or the place of paradise. Remember on the cross in Luke chapter 23, Jesus promised the one repentant thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Both of those places were separated by a great gulf or a great chasm, Luke 16 tells us. When Christ died on the cross, his spirit separates from his body, and his spirit went to the paradise side of Hades, where across the chasm where the unrighteous were, because they refused to believe even in the temporary provision of atonement for their sins. They didn't practice the sacrifice of waiting for the Messiah. They, they rejected God, especially those Peter talks about in the days of Noah who refused to follow God. Jesus then, 1 Peter 3.15, he caruso, he heralds, he proclaims that he is the Messiah, 
It's basically, he's announcing the judgment of those people in the torment side who have made a choice that they have rejected God, and now it's coming full circle that Messiah there on the paradise side is proclaiming himself to be the long-awaited one that God had foreordained and promised. But to the people on the paradise side, this is good news, because Jesus then comes into the paradise side, announces that he is Messiah, proclaims it, heralds it, Caruso, that's the word that Peter uses there in 1 Peter 3, and then Ephesians 4, he leads the captives free. And he takes the spirits of those who were temporarily made righteous by the sacrificial system and empties paradise side of hell and takes those spirits to heaven. Where now all Christians, all believers in Christ, when you die, there's no holding tank, there's no paradise, there's no purgatory. Okay? You make a decision this side. You're either for Christ or against him. And if you make a decision for Christ, the day you die, your spirit separates from your body and immediately goes to heaven because now Christ has given us access to heaven, whereas before the cross, you didn't have access to heaven. It was only through the blood of Christ, so you were kept in the paradise side. So the paradise side of Hades has been emptied now. Only the torment side is the place that remains. And so this is the reality. Either we accept what Christ has done for us, and we have our sins forgiven, and we have access to heaven, we reject him, and we suffer the eternal punishment and consequences for those decisions. But this is what Peter's talking about. Now, I want to wrap it up back here in First Peter chapter 3. But at the end of chapter 3 there, notice when he talks about how Noah and his family were saved, uh, eight people in all during the time of the flood, saved through water. And then verse 21 says, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Okay, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some people read this passage and say, okay, see, baptism is necessary for salvation. Okay, listen to me on this. The water in Noah's day did not save them. God did. They were saved through the water. The water was a vehicle that showed the salvation of God. It was God's providential hand that preserved them. The water itself didn't save them. There was a boat that God provided for them, and the water on which the boat, you know, sailed was a vehicle through which they experienced, quote, salvation. But it was, it was the salvation of God. It was, his, it was his divine providential hand that sustained them and saved them. Baptism, in a similar way, is just a vehicle. The water is symbolic of something. It doesn't save us. You cannot add anything to what Christ has done by dying for us on the cross. It is faith in Christ alone. It is not faith plus baptism. It is not faith plus speaking in tongues. It is not faith plus good works. It is not faith plus penance. It is faith in Christ alone. Otherwise, if you add anything to faith in Christ alone for what Christ has done for us, you have just polluted and corrupted the truth of the gospel. And so Christ dies on a cross. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It is a free gift that he gives to all who would believe and receive. And then baptism is simply this symbolic sign that we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And this is why we practice immersion here, which you'll see in a few minutes. When a person goes under the water, he or she is identifying with the, 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 the dead life, the old life. I'm dead to my previous life, just as Christ died for us, and just as Christ was raised from the dead we also rise, in a sense, to live a new life for the glory of God, the old man, the old woman dead, and now the new person raised in newness of life. 
Thanks for tuning in today for Pastor Gary Hamrick's verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Peter, here on Cornerstone Connection. We're glad we're able to bring you these teachings straight from God's Word. But we're even more glad you chose to spend time with us today. We love hearing from our listeners, so please give us a call if you have a moment. Our phone number here is 703-771-1500. When you call, let us know how we can be lifting you up in prayer. Again, our number is 703-771-1500. If you missed any part of this broadcast or would like to explore more of Pastor Gary's teachings as he's been working his way through the Bible, we invite you to visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our entire archive is available there. Just look under the Teachings tab. You can also download our mobile app to connect with Scripture whenever and wherever you happen to be. There's a link to that under the teaching tab, too. We'd love to have you join us at Cornerstone Chapel this weekend. Come spend some time in God's presence as we worship and exalt Him in praise and dig deeper into the truth found in the pages of the Bible. To find out more and get service times, check out cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for in today's study of 1 Peter. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know